so much, worship team, for leading us. So grateful to be with you today. We find ourselves in Luke 16, 19 through 31, in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And pretty fitting to have a baptism on a day we're talking about the human soul. Uh, that part of us that is eternal, the part of us that lasts forever, kids. You are, kids, you are mind and body, soul and spirit, God's word tells us. And, and I'm telling you this, I'm getting your attention because it helps us all understand when I try to communicate to you what you are. You are precious to God, and you are so much more than what you see. God made you eternal. You have a soul. If we had to define what that means, we might say something like this. The soul is the part of you that makes up the mind, will, emotions, and conscience. In other words, the mind, not, not the brain. The brain is the functioning part. But the mind that we can even make decisions and go one direction or the other tells us that it's more than just a brain. Or the will, right? Some people have really strong wills. Actually, I think most of you do. <laughs> I do too, right? And emotions, right? We've seen some of those emotions already in the service today. Hopefully by the end of the sermon, I'll have you guys crying as well. <laughs> then there's the conscience, that we know right from wrong, but not only the conscience, the spirit, which is something separate, is something that God has given us through the scriptures, and we're not going to talk about just that today, but we are going to talk about the soul. Have you ever heard the term, don't sell your soul? It's a really heavy story that Jesus tells us today. I'm just going to warn you with that. But there's a reason he's telling us. Uh, phrases like, don't sell your soul, come from scripture, scripture passages like this. Let me read them for you. Jesus is talking to his disciples here in Luke chapter 16, verse 19. After doing some teaching, he illustrates it with his story. And, and by the way, this is kind of a hybrid para, parable. Some people don't call it a parable. They call it a story. There's a reason for that. Usually in a parable, you don't name the characters of the story. In this one, we have both. We have this rich man, but we also have a guy by the name of Lazarus, not to be confused with Jesus' friend Lazarus. And then we also have named Abraham, that is Father Abraham. It says this in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who fed sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So, so picture this, you've got a rich guy and a poor guy, and, and they both, what we see in the story soon, both die and go into eternity. Look what it says in verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels 
to Abraham's side. In other words, they're carried to their father. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So now he can picture in eternity what's going on as he is suffering and as now the poor man is in heaven at Abraham's side. And he called out, Father Abraham, mercy upon me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things, but now he's comforted here, and you're in anguish, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Now understand first that what Jesus is doing here is he's challenging a common assumption in his day about class and eternity and what God's word says about our eternities and what we have here on earth, okay? So what I mean by that is, Jesus is reframing the view of his disciples as to what it meant to be both rich and poor. Because there was this misunderstanding that you were born into it. I mean, you likely were born into it, but you were born into it because of the sins of your ancestors. So in other words, if you were rich, if you had much, you were blessed by God. We do it too. Like, like when we first purchased our first house, honey, we, we said, God blessed us. God blessed us. And Jesus is kind of challenging the notion that, well, we determine blessing by our things, right? And, and that goes for the other side of things, that, that maybe there's something the ancestors of the poor man did so that now he is suffering and being punished by God because of their sins, that sort of thing. So Jesus is challenging our view on this. Now, we have to be very, very careful as we look at the details of this story, not to create an entire doctrine upon heaven and hell based upon a story or an illustration or a parable. However, there is much that we can take from it. And this I'll just say, because this story isn't about that, but it's important for me to say. When Jesus spoke of, I told you it would be heavy, when he spoke of heaven and hell, he spoke of them as very real places. That's number one. Secondly, also understand here the terms Hades or Gehenna in the Old Testament or paradise are different from heaven and hell. And here's why I'm saying this. Jesus had not sacrificed his life for the sins, paying the price yet. So when Jesus said, I know this is a lot here, when Jesus said as he went to heaven to his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. And when John speaks in Revelation of the place prepared for Satan and his demons, they're speaking of a place being prepared following the resurrection. Okay, This is before the resurrection. Everyone, say, everyone good at that for now? Maybe we'll do some teaching on it later. Okay. So... After saying that, which is really important to understand, back to our story. 
if I can find it. Luke chapter 16. Is that where we are? Some of you are listening. It says, but Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. Jumping down to verse 27. And he said, then I beg you, father, to send him, he's talking about Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, well, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have the law, right? And they have the preachers. Let them hear them. No, Father Abraham, he says. But if someone goes to them from the dead, if someone does something miraculous, then they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Heavenly Father, these are your words. And we ask you by your spirit to give us understanding. We pray this in your name. Amen. Writer Herbert Lockyer wrote a great uh, book on the parables, and he said this about this story. Nothing spectacular or miraculous can have any effect on the life of a person if the word of God is not believed and obeyed. Or in other words, God has given us everything we need to believe and for salvation in his word, okay? But one might think, well, well if, if I just had a sign from God, then I'd believe in Jesus. Maybe you've heard that before. Maybe you've said it before. If I were to see a miracle, then I would really believe the Bible and every word in it. But until then, I, I've got to see some things. I've got to experience some things before I really do that. I, I think I can trust the Bible, Maybe I can trust the Bible. I'm not sure if I can trust the Bible. But if something supernatural before my very eyes happened, like someone rising from the dead, then I'd believe. We've heard it said. But what does it take to convince someone that God's word is true? Do you notice that he uses the term convince? What does it take to believe every word that God has graciously given us? You know, not all who walked with Jesus and observed him on this earth, nor saw him on the cross, or gazed into the empty tomb, put their trust and faith in him. Do you know that? Yeah, what happened in the story, or what he's saying in the story, is what happens next. What Jesus describes here is exactly what happens next. The religious leaders in his day do not believe even though they have seen. He's prophesying, of course, of his death and burial and resurrection. He did die on the cross. He did rise from the dead. And yet his brothers and sisters still did not place their faith and trust in his word. And that's what he's saying in this story. See, the story is a response to some ridicule of the religious leaders to Jesus after he tells them a parable 
a parable that's recorded earlier on in the chapter, in chapter 16. You can look later at that yourself. But I want to point to you what he says following that parable in verses 14 and 15 of our chapter. He says to the Pharisees, the Pharisees who are lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed Jesus. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves. But God knows your heart. Man, do I need to receive that today. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. What does that mean? You justify the things that you say and do and believe by the things you have, the knowledge you've gained, the influences, the attitude you have, the, the, the money, the intelligence, things that make you feel happy, at least momentarily. You say, I believe what I believe, and that's what I believe, because that's what I know. That's what I have. That's what makes sense to me. That's what he's talking about. What is exalted among men is an abomination, though, in the sight of God. What does that mean? Like what the world and the flesh thinks is right and wise and true and awesome is the opposite of what God thinks is awesome. That's why God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. His kingdom is opposite of the world's kingdoms. Notice again verse 25. If you have a chance, if you're looking on, I should say, look at verse 25 again. Abraham responds to the rich guy, in your lifetime on this earth, you had it all. You had the Insta followers, you had the ease and comfort, the nice cars, you had the traveling, you had the finest foods, you knew the best people, you had the power and wealth, and, let, and yet, excuse me, and yet, what's implied is that he neglected the things that are eternal, Right? On the other hand, of course, Lazarus had nothing. He didn't even have a cell phone. He was sick and hungry and ugly and left begging, right? Right? Can you imagine kids not having a cell phone? <gasps> what would life been like five years ago? <laughs> but as it implies, he knew the Lord and he was obedient to the word of God. Praise the Lord. Obedience. See, here's what the story is about. It mirrors Jesus' teaching, a teaching that, that actually kind of finds its way into many of his teachings, but a teaching that we find specifically in Matthew 16, 26. And you probably know it, if you grew up in church anyway. And if you didn't, that's okay too, because I want you to hear it. It's such an important thing to understand about your life and about your future. Jesus said this, Matthew 16, 26, For what will it profit a man, he means like person, if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The question is rhetorical. You understand how important this question is. What can I get for the most prized of all things? My soul, the thing that lives eternally. What can I get for it? Of course, the answer is nothing is worth giving away for your soul. Nothing in this life that we are offered 
is more precious than the soul. There are three things I want us to hear in the text today ourselves. You know, it speaks to a lot of different things, but there there are at least three things here that I want us to take personally today. Here's the first thing. To give away your soul to temporary things is the essence of foolishness, and that's not just preacher speak. Think about what foolishness means. There's a phrase we use sometimes. It goes like this. You can't take it with you. Right? You can't take it with you. Everyone knows that. Church, you can't take it with you. Do your family and friends, do your neighbors know you can't take it with you? What Jesus is referencing is stuff and possessions and money and technology and land and business and worldly accomplishments, even experiences. And he's saying, let's just say, for example, you consider the value of Jesus versus those things. What's more important? What's greater? Just suppose you embrace what you have, the things, the possessions, over Jesus. Just suppose you do that. How foolish is that? And the answer to the question is what? You tell me. Really foolish? (laughs) Yeah. Jesus has just told us a parable prior to this in chapter 16 where he's teaching on the principle of this, that no one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. And this is what the Pharisees are ridiculing him for. And he tells them why. And I think he tells us too. It's a check for all of us. He says, you're justifiers. What does that mean? You justify things. You're professional justifiers. You're so good at it. Christians can be really good at this. It goes something like this. I know I did that, but but I was born that way. And that's true, but that doesn't make it okay. Well, I, I, I know I failed in this little area, but you know what? So-and-so made me do it. That sort of thing. It's justifying our actions and the things we believe and the things we do in order to justify the guilt and the shame. See, that's what the religious leaders were professionals at. When they went to bed at night, rather than giving their guilt and shame to God, rather than accepting the words of Christ, they said things like, you know what? I just know better. I know better than God. I can figure this out myself. I don't need that guy Jesus telling me what to think, believe, or do. They were not humble enough to see. They wanted the word of God to fit their lifestyle. Do you see the dichotomy there? We all do it. Does the word of God fit your lifestyle, or does your lifestyle fit the word of God? Belief comes from the soul. No miraculous sign will turn your heart back to God, for faith is a gift. Jesus is saying, bring the guilt and the shame to me, the pride and the self-righteousness to me. I'm going to pay the price for you because you don't have enough. In fact, you can't even buy your soul. It can't be purchased. 
you don't have enough. Only Jesus can do that. That's what the story is about. Nothing miraculous seen with the eyes will cause someone to turn from whatever it is that's keeping them from God if they've already bowed down to it and it is their idol. Jesus is speaking of idolatry here. And he's not only speaking of that, he's speaking of how it begins, idolatry that is, to make its way into your heart and soul and forfeit what we embrace over that which God has given us. And what I mean by that is, we begin to forfeit our souls when we embrace the world rather than the kingdom of God. When we make the chasing after earthly things our primary motive and seek things apart from the will of God, we forfeit the being of our souls. I mean, our soul, apart from Jesus, is starved from true love, true acceptance, true comfort, anything that is eternal. I mean, only Jesus can satisfy the soul. What does it mean to forfeit? When I was a little kid, I was on a basketball team that one day uh, was playing another team, and one day they showed up, and they didn't have enough players, so they had to forfeit. And what happened? We won the game, and they had to give up and give us the win. To forfeit one's soul is to give it up to the evil one. Nothing in this world is worth forfeiting one's soul over. What's interesting about the story is that ultimately he's talking about what we've been created for, the soul, our purpose. We've been sent into the world not to conform to the world. That's not our purpose. We will live here. We have purpose here. But our purpose is not here. Our purpose is in Christ. Believer in Christ, our purpose is in the gospel, to go and make disciples. One of the things I find most interesting about the story is this, that Jesus tells a story about a rich man who tells Abraham to send Lazarus back from the dead to share with his brothers the word of the Lord. All of a sudden, the guy in the story that has nothing to do with the kingdom while he's on earth wants to lead an evangelism effort to his family Think about that. If only I could tell my brothers what I know now, what I see now. If there's something that really stands out about the story, it's this to me. Sometimes I wonder about things like this. Like upon passing away, how many people say, if only my loved ones could see what I see now. Sometimes I think about it from the standpoint that I have this incredible responsibility to share the gospel with my family and with my neighbors and with my friends because Christ has given me his word. In other words, don't wait until it's too late. Isn't that it right there? Don't wait, church. My youngest son and I were having some breakfast before he went off to school this week. And uh, I made him two eggs and two pieces of toast. And he finished those pretty quickly. I was standing at the counter. And he comes around. And he's about to drop the plate into the kitchen sink. Because, of course, teenagers think that's where they go, not the dishwasher, right? 
as a joke. Anyway, and he's about to drop, and I'm saying, stop, hold on, two things, two things. And he looks at me like, what? And I said, don't put that in there, put that in there. And then another thing, there's still some more eggs there. I'm going to eat those. And I grabbed them, and I shoved them in my mouth. And he stood at me like this, and he goes, by the way, those were on the floor. <laughs> and I stood there and looked at him like this, and I said, why didn't you tell me before I ate it? And we just stood staring at one another. That's it. Why didn't you tell me before? Right? Why didn't you tell me before? Church, why don't we say it before? It's so important for us to hear. Don't wait until it's too late. You know, we cannot force that's not the way, the way it works. In fact, Jesus is saying you can't buy it, you can't effort it. It's not the way it works. Instead, he's saying it only happens in surrender to him and him alone. The point of this story is that we've been given the word of God. You're hearing it today. And if you refuse the word of God, then even a miracle, a messenger sent from heaven will not convince you to turn to God in repentance. Because it's something that's given freely by faith. Through the grace of the Lord Jesus. What Jesus is telling the religious leaders and his disciples is I'm the only way to the Father. And it was true then... And it's true today, you know, be true in the future because his word does not change. He's also saying to us personally, you don't have to live in shame and guilt. You can have the peace of God. You don't have to worry about your eternity. You don't have to be up at night. You don't have to wonder what the way is or what the truth is. The world is twisting it and twisting it and turning it and saying whatever they feel, and that's going to change tomorrow because there's something new every day that the world tells us is the truth or isn't the truth. But God's word doesn't change. And what Jesus is telling us right here and right now is that you can have peace with God. Through Jesus Christ. You can receive that today by receiving him. I want you to stand with me as we would together in unity respond to his word. Because Lord Jesus, if there are those here today who are living in that guilt and that shame and that struggle and that fear, we ask you, Lord Jesus, to speak into their heart. May they turn to you. I don't care if you've been in church your whole life or this is your first day in church. Today, you can respond to the word of God. For Jesus, what you're telling us here is that to reject the word of Jesus is to choose our own way, but our own way will lead us not to your side, but only through your forgiveness. Only through your grace. And we 
you have faith to receive. Lord Jesus, I pray that for each and every one of us here, in person, watching online, watching next week, watching next year. Lord Jesus, I pray for each one of us, Spirit of God, come boldly into our hearts and lives that we would have a story to tell, that upon eternity we can stand before you one day in Christ, confident as we approach your throne. Lord Jesus, you are so good. May we receive your grace today. May we humble ourselves and give to you our hearts and souls. We pray this in your name.